Our scripture today comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Well, good morning, church. Welcome to those that are joining us online and those that will see this later. Hello to you and thanks for being with us as we open the word of God to jump into it here today to be transformed once again and to receive his strength for no time. As we get started, let us uh, join with me in prayer. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we are in the middle of the sermon series, which means uh, if you weren't here last week, we started a new one called Track and Field. And of course, we have a little event going on in the world right now called the Olympics. I'm sure you've caught some of it. Uh, it has been a, a fun time watching it. And even though, of course, it's awkward without all the different fans and all that different stuff, but uh, I've been enjoying watching it as much as I can with three-year-old twins because it gets interrupted by Disney Plus quite often. But anyways, I've seen little bits and pieces here and there, and of course, uh, catch up on the, the old, good old internet, uh, finding out what happens in these days with that. But we're calling it track and field because uh, when we look at scripture, there's actually a number of verses that use that idea of running a race uh, in different ways, and they use it kind of in interesting ways. And so when you think of uh, the Olympics, one of the main events that I think of, even though there's so many nowadays to choose from, but one of the ones that's tried and true and steady, and it wouldn't feel like the Olympics if you didn't have it, are all the events of track and field. And uh, they're some of my favorite to watch, to be quite honest, because one, pole vaulting is just cool. I mean, let's just be real. I mean, they're flinging themselves and like catapulting themselves into the air and flying like Spider-Man. But there's also the, all the other events that are there. And what I love about many of the other events is simple. You win or you don't win, right? Like track and field is there's no judges as far as that. You know, you're either you compete by the rules, and it's pretty obvious normally who ran the race fastest, who threw the shot put fastest, or farther that is, who went higher in their uh, you know pole vaulting and all that type of stuff. And so one of, one of the things I love is that you know I don't have to know all the different twists and turns and angles and all that stuff of all the different people. I can just say, look at my plane eyes. Who crossed the finish line first? And as long as you know they didn't do something they weren't supposed to do you know that they won the race. And so I always enjoy that. Uh, and of course, uh, this year, not having Usain Bolt come back feels weird, but you know, there's a new era of uh, track and field coming in. But scripture uses this imagery of running a race in so many different ways. And we looked at uh, one last week. We're going to look at this verse this week. And a lot of times it's interesting what is built into that verse around it. And so while this verse, as you clearly, as we read it here today, the, the author of Hebrews is trying to convince us, hey, remember not only the people that came before you that we're going to talk about in a minute, but not only remember them, remember Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of faith. Remember how he endured the cross and didn't scorn its shame, but endured the cross. So we're called to do likewise, to throw off that sin that entangles us and run a race not hindered and bound, right? And so it's about all this idea of the imagery of just getting rid of all that stuff that doesn't really matter, of being focused 
and being determined just like that. But there's an interesting part of this verse that I really sit with me, that sits with me every time I read it. And it kind of gets lost a little bit in the English, but I wanted us to dive into it today. And so many of the things that you, when you run a race that are you know, needed were also you know, kind of in this verse as well. For instance, if you get out your uh, bulletin, there's a little place for your little sermon notes, or if you have a notepad or anything, you want to take notes here today, there's some fill in the blanks, which we'll be looking at. But if you think about somebody running a race, every good athlete that runs a race needs a few things, right? To run a race, especially in the modern times of Olympics and things like that, you, you need some things. First of all, you need a coach, right? Because there's so many different ways to run and to do things. And, and even when you're doing and running and all that, you don't see everything that you're doing. You need a coach to look at your form, to look at your balance, to help you stay on track, to motivate you, to keep you accountable, to do all these different things. And quite honestly, to give you a lay of the land as far as when you get there and your mind is going crazy, to keep you centered and to remind you your goal, your target on that moment. And so there's always a coach. Now, I don't know about you, but my probably my favorite moment of the Olympics so far, of this current Olympics that we're in, was since there aren't you know all the audience to go crazy and you know all the spectators and all that is watching the coaches react on behalf of their athletes right and and this has been some of the most biggest joy for me is to watch because i feel like they're overcompensating just because there's no audience there to cheer them on so they're like they feel like the need to like cheer with the you know like to make up for the audience not being there and of course, you probably saw it one of the first few days of the Olympics. There happened to be a, uh, a medal that was awarded to, uh, I don't know exactly how to pronounce her name, but Arian Titmus, who was from Australia. And her coach, you probably know his name, even probably more than her name, but her, the coach was named Deemed Boxall. You guys seen this? Who has seen this, this little thing, that, how he reacted, right? All right, so I'm gonna give you a little demonstration of the, he, so his, he's the coach. And his, you know, his athlete, she just won the gold medal for her event in swimming. And, you know, you see him first go. And, of course, this is, you know, in Japan, they're wearing the mask and doing all these things. So he's got his mask. And he starts running over here, right? And he's got, like, the mask. And he just rips it off. And he just, he's, like, about to throw the thing. And at the last second, he stops himself from throwing the thing. But he's just like. And I love the fact that, like, the coach got so into it. And you see these coaches, and, like, it's. When I think about my coaches growing up, I don't think I ever had a coach cheer for me quite in that same manner, but it was amazing to see just that, that deal. And of course, uh, you know, through that. But every good athlete needs a coach. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second. Every good athlete needs some good teammates. The second thing is a coach and teammates. Now, as you think about this and your teammates, you know, there's many different forms of teammates, even in individual sports, right? You still need teammates. You still need people that are in your profession, not only your coach, but you need people around you that are on your team. And even if you're a singles tennis player, you still need those people in your life that know the game well enough, that play with you, that, that practice with you, that teach you, that, that remind you of the things, or if they, you start slipping into bad habits, that they remind you, get out of it and do something different. And of course, when you're in the Olympics come around, you have teammates all over the place doing all sorts of different things, but also in every single sport representing your country. Well, I remember, uh, I told you I lived in Atlanta when the 1996 Olympics came in. And uh, I have a bunch of different memories of there, of going and seeing different things. We tried to go see a lot of the stuff that, you know, wasn't as popular that you could get tickets to, because, you know, you lived there, might as well to go to everything you possibly could. So one of the things we went to was doubles table tennis championship, right? 
Now, I've watched table tennis since here. I don't know if my memory as a kid is just, just throwing me off or what happened, but I went, I didn't know what to expect, but they had the singles and they had the doubles. And the singles was basically this. If you've seen the movie Forrest Gump, it's that. They stand like way off the table and they're just hitting it as hard as they can until somebody just gets a point, right? And that's pretty much, that's it. Like to watch it, it's, it's kind of fun, but you know, it's, it's, you're just watching people just for a long time, just hit it as far hard as they can. The doubles table tennis though, blew me out of the water. I had no clue how cool this was, right? And it was amazing to watch because my memory as a kid, and again, my memory must be off because as I watch Seattle's table tennis, it's never been as this exciting as I remember in the 1996 Olympics. But people were like, it was like watching ninjas play table tennis. I mean, the, the doubles, they were flipping over the tables. They were doing backhand shots. They were diving and like barely getting it, but making the table. They were doing these crazy twisty things because they their partner, they could get a range and they could do these like create and the ball would just be spinning all over the place. I mean, it was amazing. I just sat there and I was like, holy cow. And of course, the team that made it to the finals was China. And they were also playing the other team that made it to the finals, which was also China, right? <laughs> and it was the devil's table tennis, but the group A and group B from China dominated the whole entire world in the 1996 Olympics. But I still remember them. I mean, it was just amazing. Like, and they held the paddle, this sideways kind of thing, and they would and they would in. But it was just amazing because their teammates, you could tell they just had this energy about them. And, and watching it was, it was just truly one of the things I, I did not expect when I went to go see it. But every good athlete needs teammates. And of course, every good athlete needs an audience is number three. You need an audience, right? Because you've been training, you've been doing all this stuff, and you're competing. And you're competing, yeah, to win and all that stuff, but you're competing, really, one of the motivations is to be seen and understood that you are the best, right? You need a good audience. And that's the third thing. When I was, uh, one of the other sports we got to see was a sport called handball, right? Never heard of handball before in my life, but we're like, okay, let's go see handball. So we went and saw handball, and it wasn't even the, the U.S. wasn't even in the parts that we saw, but it was teams from all over the world, and I still remember handball is really big apparently over in Europe, or at least it was in 1996, huge. And they were like diehard soccer fans, like at the arena with handball. And we're just sitting there like, what is handball? Like, <laughs> and basically it's a water polo, but without the water, right? And they're just going around and whacking each other, doing all sorts of stuff. But like, there was Russia, and I don't even remember who they were against, but I still remember the chance of root. I, I, I really can't even remember at this point, but, but huge, yeah, like handball. And they were going, whoo, see ya, whoo, see ya, and holding the flag and waving it and just chanting and chanting, chanting. And there was a point where like, I got kind of caught up and I was like, whoo, see ya, right? Because like, it was just so much fun to be part of it. But every good athlete, you need that audience. My, um, I have a favorite. Favorite moment in the Olympics that I've seen. Now, of course, if I had been watching and was alive even during the 1980 Olympics, that would, the Winter Olympics, that would be my favorite moment where uh, the, the US team won. But as far as I've actually experienced or seen or been part of, my favorite memory of the Olympics happened in the 1996 Olympics. And it was on a day that I went to see track and field. And in fact, it was the day where a whole bunch of things was kind of towards the end of the Olympics, a whole bunch of things were ending. There was the pole vault, you know, finals kind of thing going on. There was the marathon ending. We got to see them kind of come into the stadium and in their race. We saw uh, a bunch of different things that day. But the one that blew me away because of what happened was the steeplechase. Now, steeplechase is one of the most popular events that you see in track and field normally, but here's how it works, is you run, and it's kind of one of those mid-distance run things, because you can't sprint, but you gotta go fast enough, it's not like a marathon, you gotta actually run, you know, you can't just, just lay, lay back. So it's, it's long enough, it's kind of that mid-distance kind of deal, but you run around and there's hurdles occasionally, you have to hurdle over, just one, hurdle over one, and then you hurdle over another one in another spot, 
But then on the one back end of the stadium where we were near and what we got to see right in front of us was you do this one hurdle into water and there's, if you don't jump, so you not only have to jump over the hurdle, but you, you want to ideally jump as far out as you can because then you have less water you jump into and you have less resistance when you kind of come out of it. So it's kind of like an interesting kind of little twist to the running kind of thing. And what I remember um, about this, and I went and even found it online this week to remember this moment was, uh, you know, there's athletes, and, and we had an American in this event, uh, one of the 12 athletes. His name was Mark Davis. And they all started off, and they're, you know, a couple Kenyans that maybe made the team, because, you know, that's what Kenyans do. And so, like, you know, they're on there, and then and, and they start the race, and they're running, everybody's running and doing this thing, and they're, they're going and they're going. It was quite obvious from the get-go, the Kenyans were gonna win. It was just a matter of like, who wanted the first, who wanted gold and who wanted silver. It was between them. I mean, you just, you could see it. And uh, they're all running, they're doing their thing, and everybody's keeping up. And uh, what doesn't show up on the highlight reel nowadays, when you go and watch it on YouTube, it was what happened. Because it ends, you know, it shows, it goes, you know, track and field, how they go to one event and go to another event and drop back and forth. They show like an ending, and of course the two Kenyans come, come in first and second, and I can't remember who came in third, but they, they come in, they end, and they grab the Kenyan flag, and they're kind of runner, you know, they're doing their little thing, and, and they're like, okay, who's here they want? And they go on, and that's the end of the, the broadcast. Well, if you were there, you saw something different. Because I was in the stadium that day, and I remember exactly what happened, was uh, around the second to last lap, the American, you could tell, got hurt. He pulled a hammy or pulled a, uh, something. And he, he's like limping as he's running, right? And he's, you could see like he just can't keep up. He's, he's falling way back on the pack, way back on the pack. And you can tell the race is over for him. I mean, it's just gone. Like he's, he's, gonna, he's gonna come in last place and all this type of stuff. And you can tell he's hurting, horrible. He just keeps running. Just keeps running, right? Keeps jumping. Keeps making the hurdles, just keeps going. And he's just keeping going, keeping going. The Kenyans come, they actually lap him before they, the last end. They lap him and uh, they finish and they get the flag. Everybody cheers for them, they're running around. And then it comes up, finally, Mark Davis comes up on his last lap. And he starts going around the stadium. And you know like when you go and you see the wave happen like at a stadium, like everyone left their feet as he came around. Like so as he got towards you, Everybody just, he'd be just, you knew he was in last place, but he was like, I'm going to finish this race. I trained for it. I did it. I'm here. I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to fight through the pain and I'm going to do it. And he went ahead and he kept running. And the whole crowd, you saw him like go around. And we were at the end. So like we could see it all coming. There was a huge buildup, you know, as we're coming because we were actually where they jump in the water and then there's the last turn. But like he did all the thing and just, you know, we were cheering for the Kenyan too, but like the amount of applause and the cheering that happened for Mark Davis that day as he just, and you could tell he was so moved, you know, you could tell like he's, you know, he's running slow enough that like he's kind of waving occasionally to the people just to thank him, but he's keeping his eye on the prize to try to finish. And sure enough, you know, you finished that day. The newscast didn't, you didn't see any of that. And only the people there saw it. And I remember thinking in that moment, like, this feels like what the Olympics are truly about, right? Like, it's not about the gold medals. It's not about like, it's about an idea of coming out, giving your best, representing your country, and your country being proud of you, right? Even when you get hurt in the middle, even he wasn't going to win anyways, but like even when you get hurt in the middle of it and just you giving your all effort and your country being so proud of you, cheering you on, wanting you to get to the finish of the race and just the, the amount of energy that was there for the guy who was probably got one of the worst times ever in the steeplechase, in the history of running the steeplechase, we were just so proud of him and just cheering him on, making sure he got to the end. And when he did, it was such a celebration that everybody in the crowd just got up, left their feet and was plodding and jumping up and down. And excited. 
Well, I told you before that the Christian race, Christian life, that is, is like a race. So your next fill in the blank is to remember that one is your, the Christian life is like a race. But today's uh, specific Bible verse reminds us that it happens, though, also, which happens to be a spectator sport. So again, there's your fill in the blanks. The Christian life is like a race, which happens to be a spectator sport. Now, of course, as you think about those three things, the coach, the teammates, and the audience, probably occurs to you, as Christians run in a race, we have a coach named Jesus, right? You probably know all about him, right? You have a coach, his name is Jesus. You have teammates, right? Look around you in this service. Look around at all the churches that exist on this planet. You have teammates that are cheering you on that you can partner with and do ministry with and do uh, continue to walk the ways that God has us walking. We have teammates that cheer us on, just like China versus China, right? But we also have an audience, and there's a couple ways to think about that. First of all, there's an audience of everybody who's not a Christian is looking at you, looking at your actions, and thinking to themselves, is the Christian life true? Is Jesus real? Can I see Jesus? Does it really make a difference, even if he is real? Does he actually make a difference in life? And there's a whole idea of there's a spectator sport going on with the race that you're running because the world is looking at you and is wanting to know, is Jesus real? And if he is, does he actually make a difference? And the way that you and I live our lives, of course, shares that. But our Bible verse today is one of these ones that sticks with me because there's also another aspect of the spectator sport. What I mean by this is we have to jump into some Greek here, so I'm going to just go on to this next slide. When you look at this verse, right, of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it's going to actually kind of sound like this. Now, what this is called is interlinear Greek, and so this is basically looking at the verse and thinking to yourself, if you translated it woodenly into English, the words, how does it actually come out? So here's how the verse actually lays out in Greek, if you were to trans- like, translate it very literally. It says, therefore, also, we great... And then here's the verb, having encompassing us a cloud of witnesses. Now, you guys didn't get trained in Greek. I know that in Koine Greek especially is where, where I was. And I used to know it very well. I used to be able to like open up the Bible and read it. And I've kind of lost that over time. And, but I still know enough that there's things that hit me when I look at a verse, especially when I just look at some of the phrasing. And so much of the Greek, the whole verse is tied up into the verb. And it's one of those things you can, Greek is one of those languages, you can have the whole entire sentence in one word, and it's just one verb, but the way they kind of amalgamate it and do different things and change it, make a whole type of whole sentence with tense and past and present and all sorts of different, you know, nouns and all sorts of stuff built into it. And what's interesting about this verse to me is the stress on the present. In other words, when I look at this verb and I think of the participle, it's actually the participles that they use, right? So it's kind of a noun and an adjective or a verb that is an adjective kind of mixed together. When I look at it, having encompassing seems to be like stressing the idea that right here, right now, in this moment, you and I are surrounded by witnesses. And of course, in the Greek, witness is also not only the word, but it also means martyr. So you are surrounded by witnesses and martyrs means the same thing in the, in the ancient language. But you are surrounded. And you look around, and of course, well, duh, we're surrounded with each other. But even more so than that, his point in Hebrews goes on further than that. And in fact, if you look back, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, and you have chapter 12 Hebrews, if you look back to the chapter right before it, there is what is called the Hall of Faith fame, right? Because chapter 11, the Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews, that is, spins the whole entire chapter reminding you about the great people of faith 
that you find in the Old Testament scriptures. And so just to give you kind of uh, a deal with this, the, the chapter 11, I'm just going to read some of it to you here, um, here today. But again, just to fill in the blank, chapter 12 of verse 1 of Hebrews stresses the now. Right? It wants to stress right here, right now, the now, the present. It says this in chapter 11, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain did. If you go on, by faith Enoch was taken from this life, so he did not experience death. If you go on, by faith Noah was warned about the things not yet seen, and in holy fear he built the ark to save his family. If you go on by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he later to receive as his inheritance, he obeyed and went, though he did not know where he was going. And again, Abraham is mentioned a number of times here, but to move on. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to the future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons. By faith, Joseph, when he was in end of near, he spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instruction about his bones. By faith, Moses, his parents, hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. By faith, people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell. By faith, a prostitute Rahab was welcomed, and she welcomed the spies and was not killed with those who were disobedient. What more shall I say? I don't have time to talk about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, which of course the prophets are all the ones you know, right? Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and more and more and more, right? He's going to go on and he talks all about their life. He, was, he talks about all the different things that happened. These, and he goes on to the very end of the, ver of the chapter, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what is promised, because God had planned something better for us, and that only together with us, would they be made perfect? So he goes on, he guys, it's the hall of fame of faith in the Old Testament, of just person after person after person being reminded about their faith in God, about the things that were not before them, but they chose to believe in God's promises instead. Now here's the amazing thing about this verse, is when it says this present, I stress the matter of fact that it says now. In other words, the image that he's trying to convey in this moment is not just the idea that, oh, they set a good example for us, therefore, let's follow their path, although he surely would mean that too. The way he wants you to think about this verse, or the writer, assuming it's a he, would say this. would say, right here, and now, Moses is watching you. Right here, and now, King David is watching you. Right? On and on and on with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all these names. And he wants you to imagine, if you will, being surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. Now here's the kicker. That are cheering for you. Right? That are on your team. Right? That are actually sitting there, and I don't know exactly how heaven works, right? I don't know if they're sitting there and they're all watching a TV, like a TV watch party, and they're watching our lives, or like... I don't know how it works, but the, the image is, is that they're in the stadium with us, right? And we might be limping along, right? We might be on our, on our race, and we might have been left in the dust 
by those that we're running the race with. But if we have our eyes on the prize and we see Jesus and we're limping along and we're doing the best we can and we just keep moving forward, Moses and all them are sitting in the crowd on their feet. Yeah! Right? That's the image. That's that's what Hebrews 12 is actually trying to tell you is to think about your life. That the great company of heaven, the hall of faith, are watching you and I and every single time we do an act of love for another person, every single time we act faithfully when we're tempted not to, every single time where there's the easy route but we choose the hard route because we want to serve Jesus Christ instead of following this world, there's this great cloud of witnesses, great cloud of martyrs that are sitting there watching us, cheering us on, that rise to their feet, that we won gold in their eyes. And of course, Jesus is also there cheering us on, right? The author, perfecter of our faith. My, uh, my latest mentor in ministry who wanted to retire, I told you about his chalice that we use, um, gave me something. I've shared this with you before, but I want to show it with you again here today. When I, when I was leaving the church, he gave me a, a painting that he had. Um, actually, yeah, I would have copied of it and gave it to me is what I meant to say. Uh, and, and it's a picture that re- is supposed to remind me of every time I preach, the reality of what's going on, right? Now, here's the picture. I know you probably can't see it. I'm going to hold it for Brian just as best I can. I don't know if it'll, it'll come through or not. Those in front row can probably see it, but I'll describe it for you. There's a preacher, and he's preaching. Obviously, in a church, he's got stained glass behind him. I'm going to hold that as I can. It's hard to do with one hand. But stained glass behind him, and he is surrounded by a whole bunch of old-looking dudes, right? And old-looking people. There's angels burning incense to the altar of God. You got, presumably, Jesus. You got a man with a fisher net. That's probably someone like Peter. You got, you know, a guy with a shepherd's staff. Is that King David? You got, uh, you know, the, the hobo-looking dude who's probably Elijah. You know, you got, like, the Ten Commandments. The guy with the, the, the stone tablets. It's probably, yeah, you got Moses there. You got, you know, some other uh, prophet probably in the back holding the scrolls, right? And it's the idea that, hey, remind yourself the importance of preaching that the people of God have their hand on your shoulder. That this gospel is beyond the words that you plan. That this gospel that you're preaching is something bigger than that and that they're cheering for you. They're lifting you up. They're here in this moment and you're surrounded. And in fact, on the back, I'll read you. He said, Jonathan, wrote me a little note. As you continue this journey, Know that there is a cloud of witnesses. Of course, this is the verse today that he's talking about. Praying for you. June of 2018, Dennis and Sue Moeller. I'll leave this right here so you guys can see it if you want to. But if anybody wants to see it afterwards, you're welcome to come look at it. But it's that idea of remind yourself. You're surrounded by teammates cheering for you. Big name teammates, right? That have run the race and done some amazing things. Remind yourself these things as you run. Let us pray, pray. Lord, as we're here today, we take time to remember the saints that have gone on before us. And this image that the Hebrew writer gave to us, Lord, here today is that we are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses. Just like your verses in the actual Greek, it says that it just stresses that here and now that they're with us. Lord, that's a humbling thought to think of these mighty people of faith being around us when we choose very simple and small things. And whether it's just a simple act of buying a notebook that will go to our school supplies, that will go to someone in need for the upcoming school, you stand up, 
you applaud, and these great men and women of faith stand up and applaud. Lord, as we hear God, we take that motivation of knowing of how good that is to feel that we represent something way beyond ourselves and that Lord, that there's something vitally important in our life. And as we hear God, we surrender once again to you. Lord, help us to run our race and God help us to always accept that applause from heaven that guides us and encourages us along the way. Amen.